Wandering Journo at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town. The podcast that takes you on an audio journey through theatre of the mind, highlighting a different slice of Australian life each episode. Many people will remember this man crying as he told an almost empty Senate chamber two years ago about the desperate need for a disability royal commission to comprehensively investigate myriad examples of abuse against people with a disability. Senator Jordan Steele-John wept as he read the names of 34 Australians with disabilities who had died from neglect and violence. He told the Senate he would not rest until they find the justice that is desperately over to them. It was his stirring words that finally ended an almost decade-long fight to bring the Commission into being. But he is now concerned that the legislation supporting that investigation is putting the entire Commission process at risk. He tells me on this episode of Streets of Your Town podcast that he's spoken to many people with disabilities who are now put off from giving crucial evidence because only private submissions have legal protection after the Commission finishes. He's only 25, but age and disability have not stopped him from becoming the youngest sitting member in the Australian Parliament and its youngest senator. My name is Jordan Steele-John and I'm one of the Green Senators for WA. Senator, thank you so much for joining us on Streets of Your Town podcast. My absolute pleasure. Can I say that it really is a wonderful privilege to have the youngest sitting member in the Australian Parliament and the youngest senator joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's great to, to be here. I'm, I'm so supportive of, uh, of your work and also of, of just getting outside of the various media bubbles that exist and finding new ways to talk to people. And how have you found it since your quite dramatic, if I dare say, entry into the Senate a couple of years ago? How have you found <laughs> it being being on the, on the front line, really, in Parliament? What an incredible couple of years it's been, looking back. Well, it's been a, it's been a roller coaster. I rather feel like I've been loaded into a catapult and fired. Um, <laughs> but I, it, it's been wonderful. I mean, I never expected to end up uh, in a in a position like this. I don't think the system uh, ever really wanted young people or disabled people to be in Parliament, uh, to be quite frank. Um, and I've uh, used the opportunity at every moment to try to kind of blast the hinges off the doors that do block us um, as young people and as disabled people from decision-making spaces. And it's been fantastic to collaborate with activists and organisers across the country to, to create transformative change. I must say congratulations to on being re-elected in the 2019 election. That must have been a, a really a joyful moment for you. Oh, it was wonderful. And what I enjoyed about the, the whole process the most was the opportunity to, to talk to so many incredible people in every part of our state here in Western Australia and to work with really some of the best organisers in the country to prove that you can run a campaign which rejects corporate donations, which is focused focused on people and what we need to do to protect our planet and uh, you can win uh, through that process and I was incredibly uh, proud to be part of it. 
of course, who came in to, to fill the void when Scott Ludlam had to resign his place because of the, the citizenship controversy. Yes. Uh, so, he was a Kiwi. <laughs> yes. And so from those first days when you basically had to ask for some way to enable you to even get into the floor of the Senate, essentially, wasn't it? Mm. Can, you, can you describe that for us? Well, it was it was really clear the moment we arrived in in Canberra that there was really no plan for what would they would do if a person who used to a manual chair was elected to Parliament. I'm not the first person uh, that uses a manual chair ever to be elected to the Parliament as a whole. And that title uh, belongs to Graham Edwards, who was a Vietnam vet and used a manual chair, um, but they had only modified. Uh, his office over at the House of Reps, uh, and I never thought, oh, well, I think this means we should probably look at the building as a whole. Oh, gosh, doesn't that say an uh, awful lot, so, that they, they thought he would be the exception rather than perhaps to yes, change the whole system? Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and so they had to build an entirely new office uh, in Parliament House. They had to modify the desk so that I could roll up to it um, in the chamber itself, and they've had to uh, make a number of different modifications and still have not made them all, finished them all. And they're only now, uh, what, three years on, kind of getting into the process of needing to engage in a more comprehensive review into the accessibility of Parliament House. And I think what that tells you is, is quite a lot. You know, this is the space where our democracy lives. Um, and there's a number of assumptions that were made about the type of people that would work in that space uh, and would make those decisions and I think it's quite telling that many of the public spaces of Parliament House were made accessible at least for their time period uh, but none of the working areas of Parliament were and I think that that says a lot about uh, where we are as a country uh, in terms of what the presumption is of the role of disabled people in our society. And one of the things that I hope to achieve in my time in the place is to shift those assumptions uh, to, to a place where it's expected that young people um, and disabled people will be present in them. Because looking at your uh, background, uh, Senator, I could see that you've been incredibly active in the political space for some time, even though you're very young, as me, as we all know. Um, <laughs> but yes, you'd, you'd actually uh, been in a, a few elections before you were able to become a Senator. Yes, I, I put my hand up to be a, a candidate a couple of times before, driven primarily by a, by an, like a... Uh, an understanding that there were not uh, other young people sharing that youth perspective in the space, that there didn't seem to be any disabled people in in those kind of decision-making spaces, and yet the decisions being made uh, at a state or a federal level in those spaces shape our lives every day and are crafting the future that we will live in. And, and so, I, I mean, Christ, I, every single time I did it, I can tell you I was more than a little bit nervous because everything is set up in society around you to say, you know, you've got to wait until you grow up to be in any of these spaces. What would you know? <laughs> you know, you haven't lived. And so you've got to fight a lot of that internalised discrimination and, and silly thought process. But I always push myself to do it um, because I thought, well, you know, if you push through the, the feeling that you have, maybe it'll make it easier for the next person to do the same. 
And have you noticed, has there been improvements in parliamentary processes and in, in wider aspects that you've been lobbying for in that three years, as you mentioned? Parliament's an interesting example, I think, of another one of the challenges that we face as disabled people. They've made it accessible to the bare minimum for me, you know, for the actual disabled person under their nose right now. But they have not done the longer term work that is needed to make it accessible for everybody. One of the first things that I mentioned was the need to create a plan should uh, a deaf MP be elected because it became very clear to me very quickly that they would need to change the way that people contributed to the official records of it, you know, of Parliament through the Hansard system, the way that MPs would be empowered to speak in Parliament, vote in Parliament, the provision of things like, you know, constant interpreter. Uh, services for them. It would be a massive logistical undertaking as they found in New Zealand when they elected a Greens MP by the name of Mojo Massa. And it was actually 12 months before Mojo could take her seat because the parliament couldn't figure out how to get the whole thing working for a year. And that kind of delay in parliamentary representation is just not okay. So I was badgering them about that till from the moment that I got in there, and there still is not a comprehensive plan um, around the election of a deaf MP. So there's still a lot of work to do, and I think it shows you that even in Parliament, there is still that attitude which many of us are familiar with, which is uh, if somebody makes a noise, do the mere minimum to shut them up and then go back to business as normal. And that's an attitude which we must not accept as disabled people. I hope that many will remember your very impassioned speech that led to, of course, the Disability Royal Commission, which is now rolling out and and hearing Mm. many of these issues that you speak of in, in wider society as well. Were you pleased to see how quickly that that Royal Commission was able to get running? And are you pleased with how it is going at this point? Well, I think, I mean, it's important to remember that the Royal Commission was, the establishment of the Royal Commission was the product of a decades-long campaign by disability advocates. And it's one of the great examples of collaboration between our movement and uh, a political movement as well. Uh, The Greens and uh, the disability rights movement here in Australia have worked kind of hand in glove over the best part of 10 years starting with the Senate inquiry led by Rachel Seward, which was itself prompted by the Four Corners report in in 2014 uh, into these issues surrounding particularly Urala in Victoria. That Senate inquiry produced a 400-page report which had a recommendation of a Royal Commission, uh, which was then roundly rejected by the major parties for for a subsequent almost two-year period. Um, where both Labour and the Liberal Party, you know, ridiculously uh, repeated the line that uh, the introduction of the Quality and Safeguards Commission would solve the issue, uh, which was patently ridiculous. But both the Greens and the disability rights movement kept pushing, and I uh, think my election allowed those things to be embodied, if you like, in the same person, and for us to... Uh, apply that last piece of pressure. But uh, even at the last moment, it was those two aspects working together. We had, uh, you know, 30 or 40 disability uh, rights campaigners uh, fly to Canberra for that last vote on whether the, the commission would be established, virtually swarming the halls of parliament, you know, speaking live to every media outlet in the country. 
applying that pressure so that when that vote was taken, it was necessary for the government to actually act on what the parliament had then asked them to do. It must have been a really sweet relief, I imagine, to, to be at the end of that process, to be able to, to help enable it come to be. It was a deeply emotional moment to sit on the floor of the House of Reps and see that motion passed, looking up at friends and colleagues who I'd been working with on this issue for years, but who I also knew were themselves survivors of violence and abuse. And there was a lot of emotions at once. There, there, was, there was hope and there was relief and there was also determination because I knew that the establishment of a commission in itself is, is not the end of the story. It is a moment of taking into the collective hand, if you like, a, a tool which can be wielded for good or ill in the fight to end disability discrimination in Australia. And what we saw subsequently was that tool being used in just that way by uh, the Commission, uh, achieving some good things, but also there have been and remain a number of problems with the with the Commission uh, that, that need to be urgently addressed because at the end of the day, it is an investigative co- uh, process that belongs to the community as a whole. It is a product of a collective piece of work and it is work that will continue once the Commission has concluded until we have achieved a truly inclusive uh, society. Yes, you've been a very outspoken, Senator, about your concerns with the legislation around the Royal Commission. Can you explain that for us and whether that is being adequately dealt with? So my concern and the concern held by Uh, the disability community is that the current piece of legislation that establishes the commission does not adequately protect the privacy of uh, people that make submissions to the commission. At the moment, it only protects the confidentiality of those submissions for the life of the commission itself. The mechanism that is used to uh, establish this, the Royal Commissions Act of 1905, doesn't it fails at the moment to extend the privacy uh, provisions that exist for things like private hearings to all submission types um, and that's so important because private hearings are not uh, available to everybody and they're not appropriate for certain types of evidence there are certain types of evidence where a private session doesn't cut it and so what we've been arguing with the government we've we've been pushing the government to do uh, is just to simply amend uh, the royal commissions act uh, to extend those privacy protections and give people the peace of mind uh, that speaking out uh, won't have any negative consequences upon them are you concerned that this legislative hurdle which still exists could that actually be preventing some people from coming forward oh it is currently preventing people from from coming forward i've spoken to many many people personally that have said to me jordan i i will not uh, I, I desperately want to tell my story. Um, I've been waiting, and one woman said, uh, I've had 30 years' worth of evidence, but I can't share it until I know that doing so uh, will not cause myself or people that I care about to come to harm, which is a perfectly legitimate concern. Uh, you know, if you're telling your story to the Royal Commission, you have experienced uh, not only violence, abuse, or neglect, but also systemic failure. 
um, you know, systems that were meant to protect you have let you down. Uh, information has been covered up. Organizations have acted wrongly. Um, and so it is totally understandable that people would want to make sure that their privacy was guaranteed before they told their story. I think people would be quite shocked to to hear that uh, a royal commission essentially can't provide that, that privacy under the legislation that it has at the moment, that, that guarantee of people's evidence. You, you People would think that that's what a royal commission would be for, I imagine. Absolutely. And, and I think people would be further shocked to know that the government has known about this since November of last year that the Royal Commission in its, uh, in its uh, uh, report of earlier, uh, you know, earlier this month made very clear that the absence of this legislative amendment is now acting as an impediment. They use that word explicitly, an impediment to their investigation, and yet the government has failed to provide the needed legislation um, to to correct this issue. And it is really quite simple. It is just an extension of a privacy clause that uh, it currently exists for one type of session, one type of evidentiary session, uh, to all types of ed- evidentiary uh, session that the, the commission undertakes. Um, it would pass in the blink of an eye. They could do it. The government could do it in the next budget sitting. It would have... Uh, support of the entire chamber and yet the Attorney General has repeatedly failed, uh, sitting after sitting, um, to make this amendment. And eight disability advocacy organisations have also written to the Federal Attorney yes, General, Christian Porter, uh, calling for that legislation to be changed, to provide protection no matter how information is given to the inquiry. But it seems that Christian Porter is still considering this. What what do you hope could happen? Are you trying to push this within Parliament as well? You, you mentioned the budget sittings. Yes, well, we, we've actually taken the course of action now of drafting our own piece of legislation um, and we'll introduce it in the next uh, sitting of Parliament uh, to increase the, the pressure upon the government. The responses that we've had from the ter- Attorney-General have been completely unacceptable. I mean, they've been saying the same thing, that we are considering uh, legislative options since February um, of this year. You know, our commission is finite. It will. It only has a three-year life currently, and months and months of time being wasted currently, uh, where where evidence, critical evidence, is not being gathered. But not only that, but it is also the the case that until this legislation is passed, people can't confidently go out and uh, campaign for people to come forward. You know, I, I wanted to spend my time as a as an advocate and as a as a community representative wholeheartedly encouraging people to give their evidence to the commission because I know that that is necessary. People have told their stories to inquiries and inquests, you know, till they're blue in the face and nothing ever changes. And my desire and the desire of organisations here in Australia is to be able to go out to the community and say, This time it's different. This time you will be safe. This time you will be believed. And this time action will be taken. And I haven't been able to do that. And these organisations haven't been able to do that because at the moment we we can't say that and have it be true. Uh, We have to engage in this very tortured, well, yes, you can tell your story now, 
But depending on what kind of story it is, uh, you might wish to wait until later because although you know, though it may be unusual for you to suffer neg- negative consequences, we cannot guarantee your privacy. And all of that qualification, uh, as you can imagine, just leads people to say, no, it's not safe, it's not okay, I don't feel comfortable. We've got to bring that uncertainty to an end. It's pretty damning, uh, Senator, when you say that it, it actually prevents you from recommending to people to give their evidence. That It shows how grave the situation is. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it is so grave. We, we are now at a situation where the, the, the integrity and the viability of this commission is something that is coming into question because it is not able currently not only to gather all of the evidence, but to gather some of the most critical evidence um, to informing its recommendations. Um, and we're nearly, at the, we're, we're nearly at the point where it will be uh, publishing its first interim report. Now, it's, we'll be publishing that report without some of the most livid examples of the systemic failure, which I know exist. I have spent hours on the phone with whistleblowers detailing some of the most horrendous examples of institutionalised abuse and cover-up that you could ever imagine. And they have concluded the conversation by saying, you know, I am willing to say, tell this story, Jordan, but first this legislation must change. And it, it breaks my heart and infuriates me uh, more than I can possibly say. Because, to be honest with you, having, you know, found the courage to, to tell these incredibly difficult stories, uh, the Attorney General hasn't, it seems, uh, been able to be bothered to put together a piece of legislation that my office drafted inside of a week to get this thing done. So at this stage, you're hoping that that drafted legislation, that that is the way forward? Absolutely. I mean, but again, it's only part of once we have it uh, sorted, then we have to do the work of getting people to, you know, uh, then tell their stories. Uh, But also, it's not the only problem that the Royal Commission has currently. I think we've just concluded a hearing uh, period into the use of unauthorised restrictive practice, and there was a shocking lack of lived experience in that hearing. There was, I think, only one person that had actually been subjected to unauthorised restrictive practice that gave evidence uh, at that hearing. We had an entire hearing uh, into education without hearing from a disabled student. This is not good enough. We we, uh, must have a Royal Commission that is centred on the actual lived experiences of disabled people because those are the stories, that is the evidence that will most usefully inform uh, recommendations of how to stamp out these discriminatory behaviours. And so I think there needs to be a re-examination of the thought processes that are going into uh, the construction of the hearing programmes because at the moment that lived experience is not being uh, centred as it should be. That old adage of nothing about us without us, which has been around for decades, is not being reflected in the hearing programmes which the Commission are producing. Have the effects of COVID-19 been part of that? I mean, to to look at, I suppose, what what could have caused that 
Is that a possible reason or really is that something that could be overcome as well? Oh, easily overcome, easily overcome. Uh, it's just about who you decide uh, to include and exclude in your program and what networks you activate in order to get people to, to come forward and talk. We know that there are many, many individuals across Australia who would uh, love to share their, well, they wouldn't love it, you know, there's nothing enjoyable about this, but they would be willing to share their story to what it is like to be subjected to an unauthorised restrictive practice so it's not like there aren't any examples here in australia senator thank you so much for telling us about this very important issue and we'll certainly be sending this out to all of our streets of your town supporters and into the wider disability community as well perhaps to wrap up today what do you hope will come from the royal commission we've spoken of the limitations is it too late to overcome that what do you hope will be the end result from this. Well, it is absolutely not too late to overcome these challenges. With this legislation passed and uh, with a, a reset in how the uh, the Commission approaches its hearing programs, we can absolutely get this Commission back on track. And I believe that it is has the potential to be a truly transformational tool for the elimination of discrimination in Australia, uh, discrimination against disabled people. The ultimate goal is nothing more or less than the transformation of our society uh, into one which is inclusive um, of all disabled people and which is liberated uh, from the shackles, if you like, of ableism in our society, one where disabled people are free uh, to pursue our lives and and our aspirations on our terms. Uh, That is a a future, a community, I think, that would be supported and embraced by the vast majority of people in our country. And it's something which our commission uh, can help bring that one bit closer to a reality. Well, Senator Jordan Steele, John, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for making these changes in our parliament as a senator in that very symbolic centre of Australian society. If, if parliament isn't accessible, then really, how can the rest of society be? Indeed. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. That was Senator Jordan Steele-John speaking about his concerns about the Disability Royal Commission for this episode of Streets of Your Town podcast. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.